Welcome to the Rogue Moment Podcast presented by Callaway. Callaway used rogue thinking to innovate and design the new number one driver in golf. I'm Bill McAtee, and we're proud to welcome into our Callaway Rogue Moment Podcast one of the most influential people in all of sports. In fact, uh, he's been called the most powerful man in college football. We'd like to extend a warm Callaway Rogue Moment podcast welcome to the legendary sports agent and all-round great guy, Jimmy Sexton. Jimmy, thanks so much for doing this with us. Thank you, Bill. It's my pleasure. Enjoy it. Well, you have had such a remarkable career, and uh, one of the hard things to do here on the Rogue Moment podcast sometimes, because our guests are so accomplished, is to properly frame and do justice to all of their accomplishments. I could lay out what you've done, the people you represent, talk about the football division you lead at uh, CAA, which is one of the world's great entertainment agencies. But how do you yourself tell people what you do? What are the things career-wise that people seem most interested in? I think a lot of times what we what gets lost in the shelf will be a lot of people look at the contracts we negotiate for either for players or coaches but that's a very small part of what we do. I think a lot of what we are is available to counsel the coaches, counsel the players on their career, uh, to use our years of experience in working with other players and other coaches to help them get to the goals they want to achieve in their career. And then and in some cases, especially on the player side, is to help them safely navigate the other side of their life. And that's, you know, after they've played for hopefully 5, 10, 12, 15 years, to, you know, they're still very young to get to that side, too. So I think a lot of what we do is are available really 24-7 for a, just for someone to talk to that, that's not biased. I mean, obviously, their employers, whether it's a team or a school, I mean, that's conditional love, as they call it. If you're, <laughs> if you're playing great or you're coaching great or you're winning a lot of games, they love you. But as soon as you don't, they don't, they don't love you anymore, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of what we do is basically are there and available for the players. Obviously, we negotiate their contracts. That's the most that, – that gets the most press, I guess, but that's a small part of what we do. Who, who are people most interested in among those that you represent? Um, I think in the coaching side, over the years, it's been guys like Bill Parcells, Nick Saban, obviously, in college. Um We've been fortunate enough to have a lot of great players over the years. Uh, Reggie White, uh, interesting people like Tim Tebow. I mean, different people like that. So, I think it comes and goes depending on you know what what area you're in. I mean, I've been doing this for about 34 years, so it, it, it's different sort of each every two to three year period who the hot guy is at that time. But I think those are some of the names. One of the players that people are really watching is Sam Darnold with the Jets, and you represent Sam and. Uh, how is it when you've got a and you've got a number of high-profile guys making the transition from college to the NFL? What are the factors that go into doing those uh, those kinds of deals? I think the one thing you've got to teach a rookie, and we spend a lot of time talking to him about this when we're recruiting them, or when we when we sign to represent them after their college career is over, is that you know they've played football since they were probably in grade school or junior high. And they played it at a certain level, and it was a lot of fun for them. And they went to high school, it was still a lot of fun. And then they went to college, and it was probably still a lot of fun. But when they get to the NFL, and not, I'm not saying it's not fun, but it becomes a strict business. And that is the hardest thing for rookie players to understand, because they still look at the game as what it was when they were in Pop Warner or junior high school. And it's the only thing the same about the game is that the football looks the same. I mean, the business part of it is totally different. And so you have to 
the, the players that I think do the best in the NFL are the players that look at it as a business. They use the game. They don't let the game use them. And it is it is strictly, strictly a business. And so you have to look at it that way. And it's hard for players to look at it that way because they haven't been used to that. Starting with training camp, I guess, in late to July and early August to the end of the NFL season with the Super Bowl at the end of January, sometimes early February. What's your life like? Is there ever a time when your phone's not ringing? The best time of the year for us is probably right when the players and coaches go into training camp. I would say late July, August, uh, and really during the season because they're very busy during the season. Um, the coaches in the off season have a lot of a lot more downtime they do during the season, and so do the players. So our business has evolved over the years to where our busy seasons are really from about November, December, towards the end of the season, through the off season to training camp starts. Like, right, you know, if you could take August, for instance, August is a great month in our business from a standpoint because the players are all in training camp, the coaches are in training camp, they're going from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. And so, yeah, do you have interaction with them? Absolutely you do. But it's nothing like it is late in the season or the off season. Well, the theme of our Rogue Moment podcast is to learn about the unconventional outside-the-box moments or thinking that may have been pivotal in the lives of our guests. And one of your rogue moments, the moment that would really launch the rest of your life, happened when you were still in college at the University of Tennessee. It sure did. I was, um, I was an equipment manager as an undergraduate. I was your typical average high school athlete that loved athletics. And so to stay involved in it, I wasn't good enough to play. So I went to Tennessee and, and worked on the equipment staff there. Got to be friends with all the players. That was back in the early to mid-'80s when there were still athletic dorms on college campuses. So all the athletes lived in one dorm. And a guy that I met my freshman year was a guy named Reggie White. If you fast-forward to his senior year, we're standing on the field before playing Boomer Esiason in Maryland uh, in the in the Citrus Bowl. And two gentlemen walk over to me from the United States Football League, Pepper Rogers and the late Robert Fraley, and they say, we know that your friends are Reggie White. They introduce themselves to me, and they say, we want to sign Reggie White as soon as the game's over tomorrow to the largest contract in the history of football uh, to be a defensive lineman. So that was the same year, Bill, that the top two players in the draft that year would have been Steve Young and Reggie White or Reggie White and Steve Young. So that, that dates me a little bit probably, but <laughs> – um, that's how I got into the business. Reggie looks at me and says, why don't you help me with this? Now, to be fair about it, in 1983, there weren't five people in the agent business back then. Uh, this is a fairly young industry, and so it wasn't like it would be hard to do what I did now, what I did back then now. And so that's how, that was, that's how I got into the business. So if I'm not standing on the field at that time, if I don't run to those gentlemen, if I'm not friends with Reggie White, we're probably not having this conversation today. So I would say that's probably the most important you know, moment for me because it was, it was how and the reason why I got the business. It was certainly a rogue moment for your parents because they had a whole other track plan for you, didn't they? Yeah, I came home and told my parents at 20 years old as a sophomore in college that I was going to try to be what's called a sports agent. And my mother said, can't you just be a doctor or a lawyer or something like a normal person? Be? What's a sports agent? And we laugh about that now, but that was, that was 1983, so that was several years ago. <laughs> so what is, it, what is a 20-year-old kid who's suddenly representing the, the hottest property in professional football, what does that kid do? Well, back then, 
then it was it was a lot different. I mean, I was the USFL paid my way to go to the Hula Bowl in Hawaii and and watch after what they hoped would be their future investment. Um, the, the 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 Memphis Showboats were flying Reggie into town for 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 trips where they were staying with us. But they, they were using me sort of to get to him, and basically using me to try to tell him not to sign with an experienced agent at the time, but to let me do it, because I'm sure they wanted to try to take advantage of a 20-year-old that didn't have any idea, you know, what he was doing back then. Um, like I said, I mean, there's no reason why he should have believed in me to let me help him with the advice on that, but those were some of the things that I, that I was doing as, as a, you know, the foray of getting into the business. I went back and finished school. Uh, and then came out a couple years later and started in the in the in the work in the business full time with Kyle Rote, who was my partner for a long time. So it was a it was a crazy ride and a crazy story. And I feel sorry for kids that are coming out of either business school or law school now, and they come and they ask me, "How do I get in the business?" And when I tell them that story, <laughs> they just sort of look at me and they say, "So you're I need to be friends with somebody like Reggie White." And I'm like, "Well, that worked for me, but not, not everybody has a friend like Reggie White." So I, I obviously owe a lot to him for being here today. Were there were there ever any any moments in those early days when you just felt I am way over my skis here and I I don't know what I'm doing. I may have felt that bill but I think I didn't know enough to really know that I didn't know anything. I know that make, <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense what I'm saying but I think I was just so excited to have this opportunity and 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 I saw what it could be down the road and so um I, I don't think I was I don't think I ever picked up on that. Now in years later I've looked back on it and I've thought wow what in the world was I doing back then? I mean I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And so, um, you know, I guess I learned on the fly, you know, how to how to do the business. You represent so many high-profile clients, and I believe 11 of the 14 coaches in the SEC, for example. How difficult is it to make sure you always properly balance the interests of your individual clients when maybe those interests are opposing? That 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 can't be easy. It's not easy, and the, the worst games for me are the ones that, for instance, last year, the national championship game, you know, on one sideline you have Nick Saban, on the other sideline Kirby Smart, they're both clients. And so it's, uh, you know, you go to one locker room after the game and there's total elation. You go to the other locker room, there's total dejection and misery and so on and so forth. So it, it is it is difficult from that standpoint to ride that emotional roller coaster, if you will, with each client. And, you know, you always want every client to do as well as they can do to help extend their career, especially from a coaching standpoint. So we often say that we're sort of like Switzerland in the in the peace negotiation or the peace treaties is that, you know, we hear everything, but we can't say anything. And so you do have to be, uh, I guess, focused on the client you're dealing with at the time. But we've been able to manage it pretty well over the years and haven't had any real issues with it. But it, it, it can be can be trying at times for sure. We're talking to Jimmy Sexton in this uh, Rogue Moment podcast presented by Callaway and so in all of the negotiations that you've had over the years that you've been doing this, is there, are there any, is there one or two that stand out specifically because they were so different or just so memorable? I think probably um, the whole Reggie White scenario with the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles in the late 80s and early 90s. By this time, I'd been in the business for five or six years. I had a little bit better feel for what I was doing. Um, now you have to remember, Bill, we're in a whole different era then. There wasn't free agency. So when you had a great player like a Reggie White, you, you literally were arguing with the ownership 
um, over what he should make, but he didn't have any recourse. He couldn't go play for another team. He couldn't go to free agency. There wasn't free agency back then. And so I think probably that whole situation from 89 to 93 where he ended up suing and joining the Freeman McNeil uh, guys that were the Freeman McNeil lawsuit, and then he ended up suing the league for free agency and ended up winning a settlement uh, with with the league to have free agency. I think that was probably the most defining moment because of what it did to change the NFL from 93 on where players could actually move. And what we see today is players move every offseason in every sport. So, But back then in the 80s, they didn't have free agency. And so I think that was probably a, a really interesting moment. And then I think, you know, back when I represented several players on the Chicago Bulls when they won the six championships in the 80s and 90s, that was a, a really interesting time to watch, you know, that that – phenomenon that was the Bulls. I think it was probably like, I didn't ever travel with the Beatles, but it was probably like traveling with the Beatles when they were there. Every hotel you go to, there's hundreds of people waiting in the lobby to see them. And the third thing, I think, is probably Nick Saban's career, uh, having won you know six national championships and having had the success he had. I think in our business, what you end up really appreciating is sort of when you get to work with greatness and you get to work with people that are just the best in their business, the best at what they do. You learn a lot from them, and I think you really, really enjoy that and enjoy the ride with them. Not everything is unconventional, but you don't get to be as successful as you've been without rogue thinking, without thinking outside the box. So what what is the differentiator for Jimmy Sexton that makes you um, able to have the success and function at the level that you do? Um, I think taking some risk has been number one for me. Well, I, I should say that that's one of the issues. I, I think what I've always tried to do is build really strong relationships and have tried each time and when I'm doing a deal to reach a point where where all the parties can be satisfied. I mean, in, in, in our business, Bill, it's a very small fraternity. Okay, So if you're dealing with the owners on different coaches, only 32 owners, really only 31 because the Packers don't have an owner. Um, when you're dealing with colleges, there's a very small network of athletic directors, presidents. And then when you're dealing with the league, with players, the same thing with general managers. So if you're always trying to get over on them or one-up them or, or sort of figure a way to take advantage of them, sooner or later that's going to circle back and come back against you and your clients too. So I've always felt like the best deal is where both sides leave getting what they wanted. Sometimes that's not always possible. Sometimes you have tough negotiations. But I think the relationship standpoint is very, very important to me, not only with the client, uh, which is the most important, but also with the people you're sitting across the table from. They need to be able to trust you. They need to be able to know that when you say something, you mean it, and not just a threat, but basically when you tell them you're going to deliver on something, you can do that. And so I think the key for our success here is just building authentic relationships uh, with our clients and the people that we deal with every day. To your earlier point, it's been said, that a successful negotiation is when neither side leaves totally happy um, because a win-win is that's got to be so difficult to achieve. But would you agree with that? Is that everybody kind of has to give, and is that sort of one of the foundational things that you try to do in all of your negotiations? Yeah, there's very few times where you leave a negotiation and you, you don't have one – there's not one – issue that you say, well, I wish I would have changed that, or I wish I could have gotten that different. Almost every negotiation, neither either side ever gets what they want. Like you said, no one leaves totally happy. Now, sometimes when you represent, you know, total greatness or a guy that's so far out in front of everybody else's field, sometimes you do get that. 
Um, but even in those situations, if you have that kind of leverage and you sort of smear the other side's face in it or you, or you, you, know, you don't give them a way out, sooner or later that comes back on you and your client in some way, shape, or form. So I, I think it's really important for everybody to be able to leave a negotiation with their head held high and have something out of it. But you're right. I mean, most 95% of every negotiation – you're trying to get what you want, but you're never going to get everything you want in every deal. How do you define, uh, you mentioned greatness. How do you define real greatness? So for me, as a broadcaster and watching champions in different sports over the years, my, my feeling is it's, it's the athlete like a Roger Federer who will walk onto the court as if he's never won anything. And he just is so driven, so hungry to win and be successful, that he makes all the sacrifices necessary. And it is almost to humble yourself and then start from the beginning as if none of the things that you've ever accomplished matter. Would, would you put? Would you agree with that? And how would you add to that sort of definition? Of I, would, I would totally agree with that. And I would also say that I think the longevity issue of greatness is something like a Federer, like a Saban, like a Jordan, like a LeBron – Guys that can do it year after year after year after year. And there are a lot of guys in sports history, Bill, as you know, that have been able to do it for two or three years and they can't sustain it. And I think what speak to what you just said is true is that is that somebody that can start over every year or every different cycle they have in their career and continue to scale that mountain and climb to the top year in, year out. I mean, to me, those guys are unique and special, and to be able to have that inner drive every day to get up, and even though they might have won several championships or have several MVPs, they still can get up the next day or the next year and do it again because of that drive they have. I think those are the guys that are great and special, and those you can count those guys really literally on on, on one hand, mostly the history of sports, that can do it over long, long, long periods of time. Well, you think about it in golf, it's a Jack Nicklaus, it's Phil Mickelson, it's those guys, and every year, because there are so many great players out there. Your, your son is an accomplished young player, plays at the University of Texas, and, and so you know about you know the generations that come and how good these, these young guys are, and yet you still have a guy like Mickelson who can stay in the mix. Jack did it for years. I mean, that's fascinating to me because they are um, challenged um, by not only their age but and the innate competition that is golf, but they're challenged by all these talented young people. And I would think that the athletes in football that you represent face many of those same challenges. Yeah, I think they find a way to challenge themselves every day. And some of it is their makeup, you know, how they're raised and what they are by the time they get there. But a lot of it is it's literally waking up every day and figuring a way to, to meet the new challenge and create a new challenge for themselves every day. And so I would say longevity is something I really look at when a guy like a Jack Nicklaus can do it for so, so long. I think that's really, really special and things you don't see very much in a lifetime. So for those of us who want to understand how to negotiate, just some basic principles of negotiation. We covered, you know, everybody's got to give and and, uh, and and feel like they, they gave up something in a successful negotiation. But what are some of the other rules of the road for how you like to negotiate? Well, I think you need to do your research and know who you're dealing with on the other side of the table. Be extremely prepared in your negotiation. Have all the factors that are pertinent and important. But also, I think you need to assess what type of negotiator you're dealing with. I mean, if you're dealing with a guy you haven't dealt with very much before, sometimes you may need to 
leave yourself some room to maneuver back to the deal. I think sometimes when you know the person on the other side well, so if there's somebody that I've dealt with for 20-plus years, I mean, we know each other well enough to be able just to lay, their, lay our cards on the table and say, hey, here, here's where we are. And I think, too, other thing, too, but you've got to decide where is your leverage point. And what I mean by that is if you're negotiating for a player and he's got two years to go before his contract's up but the team wants to redo or extend his deal, I think you've got to balance out in your mind Am I getting as good a deal as I could get in two years when he's a free agent and there are no restrictions on him? And, and, and what am I giving up to get the deal now? Because in football especially, unlike any other sport, the, the injury factor is real. Okay, So, for instance, if you've got a player that's out there that's in the last year of his contract, currently like an Odell Beckham or an Aaron Donald, I mean, those guys have one year left, but they, they have a risk every time they step on the field their career could be over. So you have to balance that out from a negotiating standpoint and realize what am I going to get, and the team wants you to give up something in, in return for that. So there are a lot of factors that go into the negotiation, but I would say preparation and sort of knowing what your goals are and knowing who you're negotiating against are, are three of the most important important factors. We mentioned your son Parker plays at the University of Texas. Where does golf fit into your life? I played golf recreationally um, for years, enjoyed the sport, and I think my boys learned to play when they were little kids on Saturdays and Sundays out at the club, you know, driving around the golf cart with me. And Parker was of my three was the one that picked it up, and I think he was smart. He he was probably one of my, probably my best athlete of my three, and he said, "Dad, I, you know, the best chance I have to play past high school is is golf," and really took that up. Qualified for the U.S. Junior Amateur as a junior in high school, and and then had a, had a nice you know amateur career, and now play at Texas. But I mean, golf is certainly something that, that that my family follows very closely. Do you use it in business? Is it a good way to spend some time oh, with somebody? I mean, a lot of a lot of the coaches, players play a lot, and um, especially in the off season. So the joke in the football world is that literally when they go to training camp, they put their clubs up and they get them back out in January, February, and start playing again. <laughs> so from, from from a football standpoint. Golf is a sort of a March to July sport. They don't get a chance to play much in the fall because they're all busy coaching and playing. Before we let you go, a couple of couple of questions. What do you what do you love about your job, and what's the least appealing thing about the job? You know, I love everything about my job. Um, I think sometimes I really can't say anything I don't like. I guess there's a lot of people that try to get in the mix with these coaches and players, and sometimes you have to manage through that. But really, I've been very, very blessed and very fortunate in my lifetime. I, I met an old coach years ago, Ken Donahue, who coached for legendary Bear Bryant at Alabama, was his defense coordinator forever. And he was in his late 70s and still coaching in college at the University of Tennessee. And he said something to me that stuck with me when I was a young man. He said, you know, I've done my whole life what I love, so I never felt like I've ever gotten up in the morning and gone to work. That's sort of the way I felt. I, mean, I don't. I don't ever look at it as a job. I look at it as something I love, and I really like everything about it. Jimmy Sexton, thanks so much for being with us and for sharing your personal rogue moment on this Rogue Moment podcast presented by Callaway. Thanks, Jimmy. All right, thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Jimmy Sexton, our guest on this Rogue Moment podcast presented by Callaway. Callaway used rogue thinking to innovate and design the new number one driver in golf. <laughs> 